Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off-the-shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from the UK, London, the land of hope and glory. And in this episode, we're going to talk about transformation for innovation, the technical leader's part in the innovation game. And our expert guest is Deal Daly. He's going to share his knowledge and experience on the subject. So let's greet our guest. Deal Daly, how are you, my friend? Very good, thank you. So, Deal, what do you do? Well, um, across a fairly lengthy career, um, I've spent a considerable amount of time in uh, the mergers and acquisitions area, looking at technologies basically from the outside in and then moved gradually inside IT to lead infrastructure groups and lead broad technology groups, fairly large companies like LexisNexis, Intuit, Ancestry.com, and were also picked up security functions, data governance functions. So across the long history of my career, uh, it's been focused mainly in infrastructure with a great kind of expertise in data and storage. Wow. Yes, I, I was, um, I, as I mentioned earlier on, I was checking out your LinkedIn. You're, you've got quite a lot of uh, technical background. Um, you, you've not only been uh, kind of in your kind of leadership positions, but you come from uh, quite a strong technical foundation. Yeah, and, and I think that's an interesting one because I'm not an engineer by training. I've sort of acquired that knowledge starting in uh, doing M&A work where you really have to, study the technologies of a business to learn how you're going to integrate those technologies into a larger ecosystem of technologies in a bigger business. Uh, and then over the course of a, a long history of responsibilities related to operating technologies, I've had the great, the great benefit of working some, with great technology people from which I've, I've learned a lot across the years in, in several different domains. I'm kind of curious as to how that's impacted your career, having having that kind of very varied background and lots of areas. Has that created opportunities for you? Well, I think the major instigator of the career has been the fact that I came from the business side ah. and ended up in IT. So I was fairly conversant about technologies and I could view them from the business perspective. Beautiful. So when I wound up leading IT groups, it was intuitive to me that the business would be interested in technologies and and I knew what their interests would be. So then I could begin to work with the technical groups that I worked with to sort of face off with those business groups in a much more productive and business-friendly way. So the business side found that very helpful and productive Yes, to have a, a good partner in the IT world. A, a good partner. I like that. That's quite an unusual path that you've taken. Hopefully, it's not so unusual now. Normally, it's the other way around. And, and having that understanding of business, being able to talk business 
but in the technology space. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, you may have been alluding to that earlier on in my career, it was much more unusual for that to happen. Mm. Later on and, and more, much more recently, a lot of senior leaders, CIOs, CISOs come from the business perspective. They come from the business side. That's quite an interesting uh, insight uh, in terms of you know where these people come from. So, so in terms of one of the questions that I have for you, what are your thoughts on, on adapting cultures within organizations to pursue innovative technologies? Because we hear about innovation quite a lot and some com- companies seem to be very good at doing this and some companies not so good at doing this. So what's your insights around that? Well, I think it's really ter- terrific that you picked the hardest question first. That's really good. <laughs> and, it, and culture is the hardest, most difficult part of transformation to deal with because it's, it's people oriented. It's about people and it's about their perspectives on their jobs and about the, the technologies that they've grown accustomed to and are comfortable with. So that you're right that that's the most complicated thing. It's easy to go shopping and buy technologies. Yeah. It's not easy to align the teams and get them all on board and so forth. So uh, when I'm working with new group, I'm really focused on three general areas as kind of a general approach. The first is I want to understand my technical vision for enabling the vision. So yeah. what what is basically what is my technical requirement going to be? Right. So what's my what's the point? What's the reason for doing anything? The second is that you either have to have internally or you have to acquire several subject matter experts in kind of the domain specific areas that you're going to want to transform. So sometimes and very often those folks are already in the business that you're operating, that you're working with. And they're kind of like golden nuggets just waiting to be found. Right and they can blossom in their careers and adapt and learn new skills and everything. And, and that's happened multiple times uh, to my teams over the years. And it's a very exciting transformation to have happened. Occasionally, you have to bring in a subject matter expert in a new type of area that maybe the company hasn't dealt with before, but sometimes that's expected. Right. And then the actual cultural work that you specifically asked about falls into, drives certain Um, areas of change that I tend to deal with. So the first is to remove risk. So the main reason why people don't want to be innovative is they're concerned about failure. They're concerned about looking bad because they're not an expert. Uh, For many, many reasons, they're afraid of their reputation internally and so forth. So the first is to remove risk. And the way I do that is, and this takes a little time, is you have to prove to your teams that you're taking the risk of their failure. So that means the way I communicate that to them is when you succeed, you succeed. When you hit a bump in the road, that's my bump in the road. Wow. I'm the one that takes the heat. I'm the one that goes to the meeting. I'm the one that goes and explains it, right? Yeah. I shelter them from that. Otherwise, it's like asking them to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to be on the archery course and you're going to catch the arrows, right? That's congratu- congratulations. Welcome to innovation. Yes. So I tend to try to manage the risk. Then we encourage to fail fast. So we don't want to spend too long uh, dawdling on a topic or examining our navels about why something isn't working right. If, if it's not the right thing to do, let's just move on. Fix it and do something else. 
Beautiful. The third piece is to encourage curiosity. Yeah. That means get out of your specific domain. If you're the network architect, then I want you to understand storage and I want you to work on compute. If you're the storage admin, then I need you to understand the network configurations connecting to your devices. And then the, the last piece is the work collaborative, collaboratively model, which is many teams in pre-existing groups are siloed in their function, their technical function. You know, they're in a storage group or a network group or a compute group. Modern technologies and the approaches we use in, in building systems require integrated approaches. So therefore you have to have a, you know, a converged infrastructure team. You, you have to have a converged DevOps team with different types of disciplines, all participating to create and enable the solution. The thing that really resonated with me, actually quite a lot resonated with me, the work collaboratively, um, this is where uh, you get this kind of cross-boundary communication and understanding. As mentioned earlier on, I'm a huge fan of Agile, particularly the philosophy of it, which is the values and principles. And one of the values is collaboration. And one of the things that I always find really intriguing around collaboration is that you just don't know what's going to come out of the conversations. Stuff just seems to pop up that nobody thought would come up yes you know yeah you often run into the unexpected and that's one of the great beneficial outcomes however culturally the people who are new to this view those things sometimes as problems where they discover something new and they perceive it as a difficulty and the reason why i tend to try to be in most of the early meetings in collaboration is to diffuse the back and forth contention relative to issues. Is that all of all of the back and forth, don't worry guys, don't worry ladies, it's all good, right? It's all fair play, you know, because often and or sometimes you will run into groups where someone will say, well, the network this and the network that or the storage this or the storage that because they've been siloed. And now if we're gonna bring this all together, then it's all going to be on the table and everybody's going to share both the minuses and the pluses. You know, what are the good things? What things should we work on together to solve different problems? And it and my presence or the leader's presence diffuses some of the animosities and basically makes it makes the collaboration okay. Yes. In fact, that reminds me of something that um, Barney, IT Lab CEO, and, and myself are a big fan of this book here, Principles, I don't know if you've read it, Ray Dalio. Oh, yes. And and one of the things they talk about in this thing is uh, radical transparency, where we basically state reality. This is going well, this isn't going so well. And what that allows is uh, a really enlightened conversation around the issues at hand. And and the thing that I love that you've added, um, Deal, is, is that having the leader there to actually facilitate those conversations actually makes them safe. Because if it's he or she facilitating that, straight away saying it's okay just put it out there as long as obviously you don't react to it in a in a negative way it creates this flow of, of information emerging out of the people actually doing the work yeah and the, it's a cultural change that's supported by a process change because these groups mostly had never met in this way before for this purpose so for them it's a new process 
And when you deliver a new process, you cannot just deliver it and leave the room and say, good luck, everybody. Right? People yes. won't know how to behave. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to get to an outcome. Right? So it takes someone who is uh, going to make the room safe, as you said, so that you, you can go through the meeting and achieve what you'd like to. And then you reinforce the good news. Right? Congratulations, guys. This was a, a tough meeting, but it was great. There were a lot of really good outcomes. Looking forward to the right. next meeting, right? And after it's like you know, learning the piano or learning to ride the bicycle. After a couple of times, they get the hang of it, and then it's not so risky anymore. Yeah. But uh, at the initial stages of these transformational activities, it's important that the leader uh, guide uh, to tell people what to do and how to do it. Yes. And then, then mostly get out of the way and let the good work happen. Wow. Yes. I kind of bringing it back to to the original question, which was. Obviously, for kind of technical leaders adapting the culture to pursue innovative technology, I, I guess the reason why we're focusing on technical leaders is because all businesses are now uh, intertwined into the kind of fabric of the digital world. You know, businesses are actually specialized, specialized businesses, but they're technology businesses at, uh, at heart now. You know, would you agree with that statement? Yes, I think largely that's true. Uh, it's business has gone through a, a, a slow to fast evolution uh, where uh, businesses were not primarily technology driven, then they were technology supported, then they were technology enabled, and now they're technology driven. Yes. And that's an interesting switch because it's it requires the leader then to move that person's role from a supporting role to a leading and guiding role, right? Like, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've heard all of the different uh, ways to think about senior management by saying, well, you know, I just wait for them to tell me what to do. Uh, and the next phase is uh, now I, 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 t I let them tell me what they'd like to accomplish and then I figure out how to enable it. Yes. And now they come to me and say, here's our product and here's the market we're going after. How should we approach this from a business standpoint? Beautiful. And then that's, that's kind of where we're getting to now, where the technology leader is a partner in enabling the entire business, not just in the capabilities of a product. Yeah. I love that partner in enabling businesses. So, yeah, I, I kind of, um, I've got some notes here around the kind of old paradigm of, of how companies innovated. They would do some kind of market research. They might do some kind of kind of group sessions where they look to see what, what's in the market, uh, maybe reinventing what's already there. But I, I kind of imagine now uh, the people, that are, the boys and girls out there doing the selling and maybe even the marketing kind of coming back to the technology and saying, this is what we're spotting. Is, is that how it how you generally it happens or? Yeah, I think we've evolved to businesses defining a need in in the market for a certain type of solution. This is kind of speaking about it as generically as we could possibly talk about it, right? There's a need in the market for something, right? And you know, years ago it used to be everything the product got defined all the business models were set in place. You had manufacturing operations set up, supply chain models set up, and then somebody came to some person in technology and said, okay, now I need some computers. 
right? As the as the the ninety ninth step out of the hundred steps, right? And now it's it it fast forward to um, I have an I've ideated a product idea, uh, and I'd like to uh, pursue this market with it. And immediately you get with the technical people. You get with the uh, CTO, the person who runs the development and technology, and says, "How should we pursue this from a an enablement angle?" Because now you're almost entirely enabled by the technical world. It's going to be a web product, you know, hosting a database, hosting an e-commerce engine, running on servers or a cloud, right? So it's now. You know, we're now 99% of the solution instead of the last 1% of the solution. Right. Yes. I'm kind of curious, Deal, how you actually kind of go about doing some of this stuff. You've you've already described around uh, the removing risk by by kind of facilitating uh, the kind of conversations within these meetings and 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 being a a, CT, a CTO. Um, do you ever kind of do you do that yourself? Is it is that coming directly from you in these meetings? Well, usually the initial meetings on the product side, if it's a relatively new new company, new product, it would be the senior leader who's responsible for um, understanding the product itself, what the what the idea of the product is, what the business model is intended to be and what market that business model is attacking with that product. Right. And from then on, it's for that leader to create a vision for the technology design and architecture of that solution. And usually at the highest level, it's about ideating pieces and parts that need to then come together. Right. Right. It's a it's an e-commerce engine, it's a subscription system. It's a large backend database or no database. It's 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 in a cloud or it's in a data center, depending on what the business requirement or regulatory frameworks need to be, right? It it's the lead that leader's responsibility to basically create the guardrails around the technical world that say these are the things that we could do and these are the things that we will probably not do. Right. That that then support this business objective. So, and then, you know, in my mind, you know, and this is more of a personal observation because I'm not deeply technical by training. I rely on subject matter experts to help me create the actual technical architecture. I say, this is what we're going to try to achieve for the business. What are the best types of tools, systems, approaches, uh, software development frameworks, you know, other pieces and parts of this ecosystem do we need to put together that then as a fully fledged system can then drive the, the business forward. Beautiful. And you kind of mentioned around finding the golden nuggets within the organization, because ideally you've got these sub- subject matter experts. I mean, they're important. They sound very important because, as you say, you, you have an understanding of this technology. You have a, an awareness of what's out there. But you know, you need that kind of deep understanding to kind of to put it together in some type of feasible way. How do you find them, these kind of golden? OK, this is a very interesting topic because it, it lends to personal experience as well. Um, 
So um, at several companies that I've worked at, I have brought in at least one person that has um, one particular aptitude and it differs by company, what, what is, whatever is needed for a certain subject matter expertise. Um, however, one of the ways of discovery is that um, I actually uh, took everybody's job descriptions um, and asked them to, and then went back to each person individually and said, okay, can you define all the skills that are required in your job? Okay, the com competencies, basically. What do, you, what do you have to be good at? You know, C-sharp, C++, storage, network, whatever the technologies are. And, and they usually, and they give me a good story, right? And then I go back in a second round and say, okay, do you have skills and capabilities that you're, you're pretty sure you're good at, but that you're not using and that aren't required in your job? And I found that 30% of the people had significant levels of skill that were made that were outside of their specific job responsibilities. Yeah. So one of the great things about technical people is that they're inherently curious. Yes. So so people you know learn if they're doing an admin role or something, then they're learning and memorizing the manuals and they're following all the the CLIs right and they're they're learning the coding structures and all their everything they're supposed to do. But they almost never stop there. Yes. Right. They're always learning some adjacent language or some other technology. Right. And and you find people that know a lot about other things. And then if if it happens in a certain way, you could say, hey, you know, I could use you in a different type of role where you could use both the skill you currently have and these other skills that we haven't been leveraging. They're basically free to us. And it enriches your career because you have now have a more satisfactory job. And that curiosity has been uh, reinforced by recognition Beautiful. that it's been good. And that therefore, then you can give someone a project responsibility. That's the way I started some of these and say, okay, you seem to be interested in storage and you know a bunch of, you know, enterprise-grade storage solutions, and that's really great. Uh, do you know anything about open source storage or yeah. other storage that you don't that you haven't seen? He says, well, yeah, I've dabbled in a little of that. And so eventually that person became a broader infrastructure architect that wound up leading a major initiative and then went on to leave the company and had, has had a great career since then. Excellent. So, so sometimes it's just pulling out from people uh, what they're already, what they already know about, and what they're already doing in their basements, right? I had, I had one young lady that was building Hadoop clusters in her basement at night, <laughs> right? And, and she was a network engineer. I'm like, really? Is that what you're doing? So the, you find people that have extraordinarily great uh, abilities, and uh, just waiting for us to try to recognize them. So, so you know, it, it's a very, very useful tactic I find. I just, um, I'm kind of, uh, you can't see me here, audience, but I'm grinning like a Cheshire cat because I would have loved to have met Deal and have him as my boss because um, I, I think I've spent a lot of my career trying to <laughs> convey that there's more to me, you know. Uh, I, I was, people used to refer to me as the jack of all trades, but the master of none, you know. But but given the opportunity to master one would have been a great, um, you know, a great opportunity. And I love this this way of, 
uh, allowing people to say, you know, okay, this is what you do right now, but what else can you do? You know, what else? Uh, and invariably, they're going to declare what they love doing. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, what, if you give people an opportunity to be transparent, as long as they believe there's no risk in doing it, yep. they'll, they'll contribute. There's another thought related to this, which is that when you find folks who are aligned both to the innovation curiosity yeah. and who have skills to pursue the innovation, then what you do is you support them as, as internal champions. And that's important from a cultural standpoint because then the rest of the team sees that that is a direction that is reaffirmed and supported. Love it. Okay, so it, what we want to do is create a center of gravity around innovation that you want to be on the you want to be in the world where it's innovating. That's the place to be, and not that it's negative. Not that not that there's something bad about not being in it. It's that the, it's all goodness, right? There's no risk. It, you can survive. You can thrive, and so it's always creating this encouragement. Right. And the, uh, I always followed the theme of the multiplier effect. And the multiplier effect is when you create a subject matter expert in one or two places, and then they can model the same behavior that you're trying to model. Right. So, that, so then, then you have kind of people who are, who are proselytizing, you know, the same innovation vision, the same curiosity. Because, you know, at some point in time, that individual one leader can't be in every meeting, can't be in every conversation, can't be in every hallway chat, right? So you want to continuously increase the number of people uh, that, that are going to be um, very curious, innovative, and supportive of that direction. Beautiful. Yeah, it's almost, um, it's a term I use sometimes when I'm kind of, uh, coaching myself is this bleeding leadership into the organization it's almost kind of like oozing out the leadership that you have in you in into other people and seeding it there you know yes that's a very good way to put it i'm curious around how you persuade the kind of senior leadership to to buy in because this sounds like quite a, a disruptive uh, ground shaking kind of shift in the way uh, senior leadership work as well uh yes so this is the reason digital transformation is hard is because it's hard. It's, <laughs> it's not easy. Um, and there are multiple interests that um, do not always align with the cultural change and the, the angst and the political upheaval that's going to go on. So there are a couple of grounding areas that are really critically important. Number one, you deliver for the business. Number two, you save money. So yeah, that's that's those are the two two other legs to the stool. Right. Right. If you don't have those two in place, nobody's going to let you innovate. Right. Right. One of the worst ways to innovate is to try to go into a company and say, "Yes, I'll be happy to intimate, uh, innovate." please give me $20 million, right? That's not, that's not a path. Um, I've never followed that path. I've always attempted to self-fund the innovation. So this calls for 
beginning to transform um, at the technical and engineering and process levels for the purposes of saving money so that it can be returned to the business. Wow. And that's the first, first kind of good faith token that I give the business. And then the second is to deliver a result, right? So following the theory of small successes, right? Everything you do, try to make it a good experience for the business. Wow. And in doing so, then you've got, then you can at least hold them off for a while while you're doing the innovation. Remember that the, the technical world innovates much more slowly than marketing and sales and product. Right. Okay. Right? You can you know, marketing, sales and product. You can go in a room for an hour and a half and completely change the strategies of the business. Uh, in an, an hour and a half, you can't change a disk drive. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, 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 you know, with three-year depreciation schedules and lo- a large amount of infrastructure and cloud migrations, the IT world and the technology world does not adapt that quickly. Yeah. So you basically have to default, devolve the technical world into a world that can iterate more quickly that's part of the transformational exercise uh, while you're delivering for the business in tactical ways that help keep them at bay while you're transforming. Wow. That, this is quite interesting because this resonates with a conversation I had uh, a while back ago. Somebody who was involved in a large company, they created an innovation department and that's what they were funded to do. That's all they were funded to do. And cut a long story short, it was a very costly nothing you know they didn't really get anywhere yeah that's that's the uh the greenfield example uh the greenfield example can be successful but it has to have extraordinarily high you know enthusiasm and energy behind it and often the way that that succeeds is they turn that greenfield into the new product it becomes the new thing and eventually the old legacy thing just atrophies and goes away. Yes. That's one way to succeed at it. Uh, if you use Greenfield, it's very difficult to then reverse engineer that into the existing world because yeah. you started out by diverging it. You've started out by creating something so completely antipathetic to, to what you, you already had. Right. So, um, it, it is, you know, it sounds like it's faster, but unless you're just going to stick with that as the end game, then it, it winds up to be kind of a path to nowhere. It's, it's, it winds up being an R&D group. Yes. And then, then you have to determine how to bring that R&D into the main legacy business anyway. Yes. Way. Yeah. Which I guess right. has got that kind of disruption around it as well, because trying to inject something new into an, uh, something that's already got its... Uh, you know, state um, yeah. stability. You know, yeah. I mean, all all paths in this world are difficult. Um, it's it's the but the the one that makes the most sense over the long term, anyway, is to re-engineer and transform the technology world from the inside out, mm. and re-engineer and transform the business processes from the inside out. Right. You two together because you're envisioning a new business process framework, a new business operating model, 
that then is supported by all of the new technology framework stuff that you're going to do inside uh, development, DevOps, and IT. Um, and then as long as you marry those together, you can have a successful en endeavor over time. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of looking at the questions I've got written out here. And I think you've stolen one of mine already, which is the, uh, uh, you know, how do we set up organization to be nimble and iterate based on market input, which is this kind of iterative uh, approach to de always delivering for the value, uh, value to the business and saving money in small uh, iterative kind of uh, cycles, uh, it, uh, delivering some form of success to the organization. Uh, yeah, so I think there's um, some significant points around organizations relative to becoming more agile. Uh, uh, heretofore, organizations are really structured around processes. So then people are organized around the ability to execute a process. Mm. Okay, So when you change a business model, and you introduce new technologies, you are going to re-engineer all the processes. You're going to eliminate processes. You're going to make a 30-step process, a two-step process. You're going to automate processes. All those things are going to disrupt the team structure and how teams relate to one another, right? So what you have to do is envision the new process world. It's like the interstate highway system right? If, if, you, if you just design a new interstate highway system and you change where all the exits and entrances are and they're not near any of the cities anymore, it's not going to work, <laughs> right? So, so in my theoretical world, if I'm going to have a really optimized highway system, theoretically, I'll be able to just pick up the cities and move them to the right places along the highway. Right. Yes. So, and that's how hard it is. You're going to pick up cities and you're going to move them because it's, you know, you don't want the city at the top of the mountain. You want the city at the bottom of the mountain. Right. right. But the point is that you re-engineer re the organization to support the process structure that's been in place. And that's where you get into creating converged organizations like a DevOps function. Right where the technology is driving the ability to do tech, IT technology things and development technology things simultaneously or right. in an automated fashion, right? Well, then how do you do that if it's two different organizations? You can't. So what you end up doing is taking people from each group and putting them in this control position relative to these single processes that right. then they operate. It's not completely dismantling development and completely dismantling IT, but you're creating a demilitarized zone between them. Right. They both work together and they can collaborate on things using tools and scripting and automation that was never available before. Right. So most businesses are familiar with DevOps by now. Yes. It's a good, it's a good example to use. But everybody will recognize when they started doing this, it was uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, who's going to govern access and permissions? And, and, and the developers are saying, yeah, I want to release on demand. I want to release continuously throughout the day. Yeah. And then, and then you have to have a group that's in between that can mediate that and automate it and get it to where it's acceptable to both groups. Right. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I find that um, I've never really looked at DevOps like that. This kind of demilitarized zone between the 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 one end, which is developing the software. I see the value of of this kind of special unit or special group of people, but it does seem to kind of create that conversation between the two two areas. You know, it's it, it, the the this kind of middle ground understands both worlds and is able to create yeah. whatever it needs to to kind of satisfy both. And this is where you get back to that golden nugget topic, because then you'll have developers who know things about the underlying technology world that they never really used before. Yeah. And then you'll have uh, you know, IT people who are fairly skilled in scripting yes. and can automate things. And so they wind up using skills that they never used before. Okay. So people that go from both of those groups into DevOps wind up with being able to use an enhanced or increased set of skills that they weren't able to use before. Yeah. Um, data ops is one that's coming up, right? People are talking about that. Um, it's it's one that I, I like that idea, looking at data holistically, right? Rather than a siloed data structure inside storage devices, but to think of data theoretically as a data fabric, right? That, that, you know, where all the data lives, that should be operated by a data ops team, right? Who has control of both the operational and policy governance over the data. Right? Oh. It's an interesting idea, right? That's kind of a next, the yes. next thing, right? And then you have, then you have a data centric focus on the data rather than an infrastructure focus or a development database focus. Yes. The reason why I kind of got really interested in that, because from past experience where I've seen uh, these kind of uh, data experts working in isolation, collecting the data, and then uh, being asked to deliver um, an abstraction of that to to the business. And and it has never been quite right for what they wanted. It didn't serve a purpose. In fact, it was a very expensive um uh, endeavor for the organization which actually didn't result in anything uh, and i like i love this idea of, of of people sitting in the middle understanding what the business needs also understanding what the data scientists want to know and understand how to do it and bringing that together and that's what delivers real value um that's got me thinking around the kind of whole business agility piece where you have these boundaries between different parts of the organization and how you create those demilitarized zones i love that yeah I got. I feel like there's an infographic coming on here, you know, uh, <laughs> and maybe you can well, place that yeah, together. If you take it away from kind of sounding militaristic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more of a safe zone, right? It's, it's where both groups can feel it's okay in that space and achieve things together. Yes, that's very complicated and difficult to do because, uh, like in large companies, you you don't have just one development team. You may have 50 development teams. So then how do you have 50 development teams negotiating automation rules with an IT group that has vertical functionalities of, of storage, networking, and compute, right? You're going to wind up with chaos. So what you do is you centralize the concepts across development around automation and code release and test and, and all that. And you bring that expertise into the group, and then you bring the in, the control governance, you know, data protection expertise from IT into that group, and say, okay, you guys are now responsible, yeah, 
for getting to this objective, which is continuous delivery or whatever the objective is. Yes. Yeah. So they can feel okay coming up with the answer. Yeah. Because they're not in their former camps. But I love that. I, I, I love that kind of it, removing that risk of, of being innovative in the problem that they've been asked to solve. We've got a challenge here. Boys and girls, knock yourself out, you know, solve it for us. Um, and, and again, it's not being told what to do. It's it's allowing them to kind of what potentially emerge their own understanding and their own kind of enthusiasm to to put in place what's needed to be put in place. Yeah. So there are important things there are continually to enforce um, outcome orientation, meaning like what is the goal? Right. We have to achieve a goal. Being transparent, being collaborative, uh, having a service orientation. Um, the, all those things come into play um, and, and can make that group, those types of groups very, very effective. Wow, yes. I've just remembered a question I had earlier on that I didn't manage to pop out, um, which was around, um, around how you persuade the kind of senior management to kind of buy into this way. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good question. You always have to start, well, I've always started with the end result. What do we want the outcome to be? So typically, uh, let's say you're in a company that's doing monthly releases or quarterly releases. You know, just intuitively, you know that there's always pressure on the business to take customer feedback and more quickly turn it around into enhancements or um, uh, new features and new functions. So if you can tell the business that we're going to change the organization, we're going to bring in new technologies, we're going to develop new processes. And as a result of doing this, we're going to help you move from uh, being uh, quarterly or monthly down into being able to release once a week. Right. So yeah. that type of data agility is very, very advantageous. You know, it's, it's a, a long slog, as you would say over there, hmm. right? Try to get the journey done. Um, but people understand that intuitively, that that's a really big benefit. Yes. In these large-scale technology worlds that tend to be monolithic, you can't just do it by force of will. You can't just say, go faster. Hmm. You, have to, you have to change the way work happens. Absolutely. On, your, on the development side, you've got to break up your monolithic application into modules. You have to... Um, what we call circuit break them so that, that they don't impact each other. So that if a particular module goes down, it doesn't necessarily bring down the entire stack. Right. Once you've done that, then each of the modules can iterate and develop and change and be responsive to customer changes. And if you've circuit broke them, then you can, you can really uh, iterate and release on demand eventually. Then you wind up with an entire uh, monolith, but now it's a disaggregated monolith that can operate uh, in a much more agile fashion. Yes. You know, and then going along with that, you have to have developed the IT disaggregation that removes all the single points of failure, removes dependencies, is cloud enabled to provide flexibility for scaling up and down. Yeah, obviously, everybody knows there's a lot to do and each group will have its trajectory for getting to being more agile. Sure. A question I have around taking these kind of monolithic, uh, maybe software solutions, how do you go about breaking them down? I, I imagine it's when you've got this kind of monolith 
solution there and you want to break it down. How do you do, go about doing that? What's the first steps? I've seen it done by services. Usually an application is comprised of some significant number of individual unique services. And they can be broken in different types of businesses. It can be broken down different ways. Like there's a service around access and permission. There's a service around entitlement. There's a service around, let's see, search and query. There's a service around, you know, there's many, many different services. Many of them relate to uh, in SaaS types, SaaS type environments, they relate to functions that are performed in the website, capabilities to uh, search, find, review, look at, make changes to, to data through your, uh, through your UI. Uh, so each one of those features or capabilities can be cordoned off as a service. So you could have a website where, you know, oh, you know, we're going to take this one service down for 20 minutes because they've revised the code. And then we're going to re-release this one little service. Mm. You're not taking the whole website down. You're just taking one service down. You say, you know, yes, there's a, there's a point in the website where someone could submit their change of address, right? Well, let's say they're making changes to the color of the background for, for making the change of address. Yes. Right? What you want to do is be able to pull that out or be able to release it at will by substituting a, an equal capability, right? Changing the code and then swapping them out wow. without, you know, impacting any of the other 300 modules on the six page website, right? So th these are all mechanisms to uh, lead uh, down the road of agility. That's right. I mean, so so the so the way in which you uh, create the software architecture and the infrastructure um, has a huge impact on the kind of in, uh, the ability to be agile and innovate around that. Yeah, I think one of the most significant is the breaking up of the monolith into uh, services, independent services, and then microservices. Um, and then um, even more modern things like creating a data mesh or using low code or no code methodologies and services where you know you can subscribe to a service or bring a technology in that allows you to del deliver code without having to to write it all out yourself. So there's the once you're basing boiling things down to their elemental levels, then it's it's easier to make changes, deploy them without conflict with other services. Yeah, it is important that there be standardization across services in terms of communication and how they can how they connect, right? So it it has to be one fabric of modules. Yeah, that are some in some ways interchangeable. And and how do you, from your personal experience, uh, standardize that fabric? <laughs> The, you know, that's the getting 300 developers to all agree on a single methodology. Yeah. Some of it is you allow their creativity to kind of curiosity to ideate on, on certain, you know, proposals and to get as many folks together supporting uh, certain frameworks or certain tools that will allow for this. And that at some point you're going to reach an 80-20 or 70-30 thing where 
70% are all aligned and 30% want to do five other things. Yeah. And then eventually senior management has to say, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Now it's time for everybody to get on board. Right. You, you never get the, uh, you know, everybody's 100% out of the gate, right? Yeah. Uh, folks, you know, and not for any, not bad reasons. They just, you, in, you know, just genuinely feel that some other tool will be better. But at some point, um, the boss or the, the leader has to come in and say, yes, we're going to go with the, the 80% solution. And then if even if we have to change things because your tool doesn't work with your code or because you did something different or you used a different language and therefore the tool won't work, whatever, then, well, maybe we have to rewrite your service into a different language, whatever yes. it is. Yeah. But then we're not rewriting the whole monolith and taking a year and a half to do it. Yeah, that's right. This is kind of a bit of a, I guess, a dark question around, you know, what do you do with the 20% that don't want to align? Well, in my experience, um, nothing bad ever happened, really. It, it's just the um, how, how difficult is it to get them on board? Mm. And they're, honestly, their, their trouble or their um, um, disagreement is usually grounded in a a true technical difficulty, right? That their code is won't operate properly on, in this tool or in this framework, and therefore it's much more significant work for them to get on board than it is for others who may have done it differently, right? So for that, that's just you know a price, a cost of doing business, right? It's it's not a, something you punish somebody for just because the, they're disagreeing be, for a rational reason. Yeah. It's no, you have to give them the time to say, okay, no, it's going to take three months to rewrite the darn thing right. module, and that's all. That's all. We're, that's what we're doing. Yeah, we haven't had any almost any ex, uh, you know example where it was it was just a you know on principle somebody was disagreeing. Yes, well, not ego. Yeah. 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 I mean, just because of an ego or something. It's, yeah. Because generally the reason to go through that first part of the process is to build so much energy about this is so obvious that this is what we're going to be doing. Yes. That you'd look silly saying, no, we should, you know, we should do this little thing over here instead of. Doing yes. Yeah. The problem. Right. Just by the force of the energy of the group. I, I love that. It's um, there's almost like a, a momentum that builds up around the idea, and it kind of carries people with them. Well, so the other the other factor in this is success is always a good factor. So the people have made that have made the transition are now moving down the road to be able to release every week or every minute or every second, and the person who's still arguing about this. Is not is they're still back at quarterly, right? They're still at ground zero, right? Yeah. They haven't started dealing with the problem yet, so they're just going to constantly come up with, "Well, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that." Well, and while ever the world is not stopped, right? The world is moving on. Yeah, yeah. I'm listening to your experience around this. Is that once you kind of create these small successes, iterative successes, and you are delivering value, people are getting the commendation. They're getting. They're getting praised for it, maybe. I, even personally praising themselves, like, you know, we really knocked this out of the park, didn't we? It kind of creates that whole, as you describe it, an energy, which then just kind of brings more in, uh, almost like a, a good vortex, you know? it's it, yeah. It, yeah, it creates more, you know? Communication is extremely important in this, uh, and it's under underutilized because technical people only communicate when needed, 
their yes. perception of when needed. And it's almost like, I hate to say the, the, use the word, but it's almost like you have to have a, a PR mindset. You know, you have to think about the public relations of everything that we do. Right. When we do something and it works right, we need to get that word out that this is good. This happened. This is good. Wow. Uh, you know, and, and it's important that people know. And so I always began like publishing a newsletter every two weeks saying this is what we did. Because in the technical world, most of the most powerfully important things are are completely irrelevant to senior management, you know, from, from an individual standpoint about what the thing is, right? Uh, so, and and often they don't even know what it means that they, what the person did or what the group did. Sure. Right? So calling out, we achieved this thing today and, the, and this is important because it helps the business do X, Y, Z, and then publishing that. It's a continually, re, continuous reinforcement that everything we do is connected to creating a business value. Yes. And then it can, and by publishing that, we keep reminding everybody, yep, we're still transforming, we're still changing, we're making it better every day. And because of that, the business is benefiting every day. Either we eliminated something and we made a cost savings, or we, we eliminated a process and we made this faster, or we made something simpler for development to do because we automated it, right? Everything that we do has to be done in that context. And that's always a good filter because then when folks come to me and say, okay, I want to do this whiz-bang thing. It's really, really, really great. It's going to be the coolest thing. And then I say, well, what's the business value? Can I, can I, what do I tell them? Oh, well, I'm not really sure what that is. Well, I'm not supporting it until you tell me what the business value is. Yes. There may be business value. But you got to know what it is and you have to tell me what it is. Yes. Otherwise, I'm not going to have our people be to be distracted by it. Yeah, I love that. And it, it re again, reminds me of the book by Daniel Pink. It's human to sell, you know, and um, and I think we're all selling in some form or another. And what what I'm hearing from you, Deal, is, is that uh, as a, a technology leader, a CTO, CIO, you've got to sell what you're delivering to the business and not only deliver to the business, but sell what you're delivering because it kind of creates a whole conversation around the value that you're bringing. This isn't just a, a bunch of techies sat in a corner delivering what the business wants. We're also delivering what the business needs and we're looking ahead, you know? So um, creating awareness around new functionality that, you know, did you know that we've put this new tool here that's going to help X, Y, and Z? you know, uh, and, and really selling it. And if you'd like to know more, you know, come on, come on over. We'll have a chat and show you what to do kind of thing. Right. And it fosters two-way communication because when you put something out and you share it, it encourages people to say, well, what is that? What is that thing? What does that mean? Yes. What does that do there? Or, or, you know, or no, that's not what I wanted. So even crit critical feedback is perfectly useful. But as long as we create the feedback loop, then it's we're all in this together, right? It's Absolutely. not something for them, right? It's no, we're all figuring this out together. And so it creates that feedback loop, uh, communication, one-on-ones are all critically important uh, with senior management to, it, it's kind of to keep this energy that in front of their minds, because, right, you know, um, yes. one, of, one, of, one of the great sayings is that, uh, intention attention span is inversely proportional to your level 
So, you know, the higher up you go, the less time you have to spend and think about an individual thing. Yes. So therefore, we periodically got to get that in the front of their minds to say, we're doing this stuff and it's going well and or whatever, or we're having a problem and we're working through it, whatever the issue is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And again, kind of just adding on to that, it's um, by bringing them into the conversation by advertising what you're doing. Um, and, and asking for help, maybe, you know, you're kind of uh, picking people up, you know, I, I, sometimes I think we tend to not really see the value that other people can bring to a conversation. We might not think that they have any value to bring, but, but just by sharing it, it allows the space for it to emerge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so one of the things that I, I like to work on, especially uh, when, when I'm in my kind of coaching role, is that kind of awareness. I call it ACE, okay, I, I've not, uh, ACE, awareness, communication. And then once we've gone through that, it's the engagement. What are we going to do with what we know and what we've communicated? And just kind of cycling around that. And, and what I'm hearing is, is that uh, technology leaders um, could really get involved in this. I don't think I've seen it done that well from a technology leader perspective. Um, I'm hearing it from you. So obviously you're doing something right, deal. Um, again, why I probably would have loved to work for you uh, early on in my career, you know. <laughs> um so how so to the CTO and, and technology leaders out there that aren't doing this, how would you suggest that they go about starting this process? Uh, well, so I, I understand that most technical people um, haven't had the experience and training to be, you know, kind of uh, communication focused. You know, they're not generally public speakers. It doesn't, the first thing that comes to mind is not to communicate or, you know, get out and go have multiple meetings about things. So it is something you have to deliberately think about. And it has to be part of your plan, just like developing code and installing a storage device. You have to have a communication plan as part of your program. Wow. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to do everything, right? You can... You can assign this to people who are good at talking or good at writing. You can just have someone publish the newsletter and you contribute content to it. But what's important to keep in your mind is to always relate everything that gets accomplished to a business objective. So you put everything in the context of the the consuming reader. Yes. We did this and this and this is important to you in your role because of this right? As often as possible. So written form is probably the easiest way to start, right? That I would do that first. And then what I would do is have a quarterly update review where either a a part of an all hand session or it's whatever you want to do. Periodically just have a session where you have 10 slides and say, here's what we've done in the past eight weeks. Kind of, kind of benign kind of things. Um, as it gets more, de- more developed and more evolved and more interactive, then you could actually create a steering committee, for example. You could oh, say the transformation of this world is going to have a stakeholder group that's going to include the following executives from these roles, representing sales, marketing, finance, HR, right? marketing, whatever, these groups. And then this steering committee gets to review what we're doing and, and, and basically has a, has a, has governance over it. And, uh, you know, 
And that way everybody is agreeing. It's good to get the reinforcement that both the plan that's on track, that's going down the road is satisfying the needs of the business. Right. You know, so you can put it in a project context, which IT people and technology people are always very familiar with. Mm. Bridging it into groups that they're unfamiliar with, like having the marketing group and the sales team and, or other folks in there, right? So I, I think you, you can start out doing it kind of lightly and easily and then develop more robust communications as you get better at it. So what I'm hearing, Deal, is, is that it's just going to get out and start small. It does, you don't need to go up and do a TED Talk or anything like that, you know. It's just just to kind of start getting your voice heard. Um, I mean, just, just for the audience out there, for people that might be uh, resonating with this, is that one of the uh, – people wouldn't believe it, but I used to be actually very shy. And one of the things I did was actually faced that whole fear around public speaking. So I joined a great organization called Spa Speakers, uh, which is worldwide. It's nonprofit. And it's a great way, a safe space to kind of get out there. And uh, and we used to find lots of technology people and project managers come there to actually present the talks that they were going to be delivering into the organization to practice within this safe space and get the feedback. Um, so I, I, I agree with you, Dil. It's really important that technology people do get out there and start to kind of um, uh, shine a light into the skill sets that they have and, and the great work that they're doing, you know? Yeah, one of the one of the simple ways that a leader can do it because they have the advantage of of managing a group is to present periodically back to the group. Yes, right. That should be fairly risk free, right? Yeah, people you know and love and manage and and are working with all the time. And then every two weeks, you just meet with them and say, "Okay, here's what we've done the last two weeks." And by the way, here's how it connects to the business. That's and then right. You do the same thing with a different audience. Yeah, I love that. And, and this kind of reminds me of the uh, of the kind of uh, agile sprint where we come to the end and we do a review of what we've been working on the last week. And and again, obviously, development teams, uh, scrum teams, you know, whatever Kanban uh, teams are doing this uh, from a leadership perspective. You, it's the same thing you can do is over a particular cycle, maybe a, a monthly business cycle, you'd say, look, I'd just like to kind of get together and show you what we've been doing, you know. Um, uh, internally to the group that they're working with, um, which again kind of communicates what's going on in the department. Um, I always find it really funny. I used to work for a large telecom le- telecoms company, which I won't mention the name of, and I found it absolutely hilarious. I had a really good chortle at this. The, the organization across the road, same company, were working on a very similar product, but they didn't know that we were working on it because nobody had aired that in a, in a way that allowed us to know what they were doing, you know? Um, so again, it, so sometimes uh, even conversations like this create opportunities, one for collaboration and two for saving huge amounts of money, you know, it's doubling the effort, you know? So coming back to the kind of CTO technology leader role, we talked around these kind of um, iterations. So in terms of these iterations that we work on, are they kind of on a month basis? What kind of timescale cycle do you run on? Iterating in terms of business changes um, usually would be longer than a month, mostly longer than a quarter uh, in length. And partly that's due to the fact that for uh, reporting results and things, people are usually focused on, you know, operating a business for a period of time, um, creating you know, some sort of result of that 
period of time and then reacting to that, creating another revised plan or adjusting right. the plan, and then integrating the aspects of the new plan into the ongoing business. So there's some cycle that is usually not shorter than a month. Right. And often not shorter, shorter than a quarter. Uh, uh, so iterating through changes usually are uh, lesser changes, uh, cosmetic changes, you know, tweaks and that sort of thing occur, can occur on a monthly basis or within a month. And it tends to be the larger changes, large, larger directional changes that occur over longer periods of time, <clears throat> primarily because it takes the business longer to learn about the requirement that they're confronting. Right. And so or then it will take them longer to determine it. And then, then, um, you know, then, then a period of time to figure out, well, what is the plan of action to address that new finding? Right. That's the market input kind of telling the organization. Right. In terms of your experience of where does that market input normally come from? You kind of mentioned it earlier on, but I'd like to hear your view on that. Depending on the type of business it is, it's, it usually comes from customers directly themselves in the media so there are just you know every form of media social media uh, surveys uh, and then for fairly advanced companies that can measure customer behavior on websites and based on their traffic patterns and other types of engagement that trends will will be discovered um, through that mechanism to say, oh, customers seem to be doing this on the website and doing that on the website. So maybe we should focus more on that. Right. Right. So for new AI driven and machine learning driven systems, you actually have sort of dyna dynamic websites that uh, can actually react to uh, customer changes um, you know, dynamically, right, and begin to move things around on a website based on the frequency with which they get interacted with. Right. Or they could uh, change the routing path directly from the front page to three levels down and bring that, bring a certain function up to the primary page if people are always searching for it. Yes. Right? So there's a lot of dynamic change that can take place automatically within systems now based on AI and machine learning. Right. Okay. But you have to, you know, the longer term changes and dynamics in the business that, that affect real substructure type stuff, like, you know, using cloud services or um, migrating from one e-commerce system to another e-commerce system because there's some dramatic difference that's now needed that wasn't needed before. Mm. Those are going to be very long time frame projects. Right. And the challenge an opportunity in the technical world is to really contract those time frames. Um, because the business can tolerate, you know, medium changes in two to three months, uh, but it's not going to want an IT project that takes 18 months to do something that, you know, probably could take place in three or four months. Right. So therefore we have to re transform all of our infrastructure, uh, 
coding and, and development methodologies, uh, simplify and eliminate the processes so that we can pull those timeframes in yeah. and make project timeframes, you know, much, much more relevant to the timing of the business need. Sure. Yes. And this kind of comes on to that uh, organizations innovating and not burning too much cash because we want to innovate, but we don't want to burn cash either because that's a really dumb thing to do. What, what's your kind of uh, wisdom around around that? Well, burning cash takes two forms. One is in the uh, rate in which change can occur. So burning cash can be interpreted as, well, we could have done it in three months, but it took us a year. So you could consider all of that, that nine months is burnt, right? Yes. The, the other way is to, is to um, n- not be able to or transform quickly enough or do it in a way that's always, uh, you know, financially incremental, where it's like if somebody wants to do something new, it's like, oh, then you got to add more stuff. Right. Like buy more things to do it. So there has to be a, a continuous economic evaluation in the technical world to always drive down the trajectory of the cost. That's a continuous process yep. and it has to be in place. So you're always looking to return money to the business. So yeah. that needs to do something that does require an, a substantive change. You've basically self-funded it. Yes, I love that. And that comes through continuous optimization and the continuous introduction of new technologies. So at several places that I've been, I've introduced and implemented uh, an innovation technology integration process. So, so one of the reasons why innovation is difficult is because it's perceived as a one-off, hmm. right? So I've made innovation and, and technology introduction part of a normal process. So in fact, every quarter I required that we be evaluating five to 10 different technologies every quarter. It was part of our operating model. Right. So that, and then most of them would get thrown away and say, no, nope, we don't need that. But then we're in a position to take a, a technology, I put it through three or four stages. Uh, we'd have it in an emerging category, We'd have it in a testing and iteration phase and then in a production phase. Right. And so I would constantly have a flow of five to 10 technologies in the uh, in the emerging technology phase. Right. So that the, the technology world is always being their innovation fires are always being stoked by this new challenging energy. Yes. Forcing us to continually evolve. Yeah. And one of the one of the measures is, is this technology going to save money? If it's not going to save money, then there better be a huge business value. Right. If there's a business value and money, then that's a winner. That's right. I mean, these are the two of the things that you uh, kind of grounded, um, you know, this transformation around delivering for the business and saving money. You know, and and self-funding. I love that term that you described there, because um, I mean, this kind of brings me on to another aspect of uh, business agility, which is kind of the funding of of projects and 
and what have you. So I'm a big fan of uh, agility in all kinds of nooks and crannies within businesses, and uh, finance is one of them. Um, so in your experience as a, as a technology officer, have you had any challenges around financing of projects, or especially innovation, which just kind of pops up out of the blue? Um, yeah, I, I, I would have to say I've been lucky enough that I've always self-funded out of the gate. Always self-funded. Uh, and it could be because of, you know, the places I've worked where there always seemed to be an opportunity to uh, consolidate, rationalize, optimize processes and technologies to then lower the trajectory of the cost consumption. So either I could uh, do cost avoidance on capital and say, no, I don't need to buy this because we figured out how to do it without it. Mm. And therefore take that capital uh, and then go to the CFO and say, how about I give you back half of this and I'll keep half of it. <laughs> and then I'll buy something that helps me in, innovate and instigate that will help me then lower costs again. Yes. And usually if you teach a CFO that every time you do something, you give him back money, you usually get an, a yes answer to that question. I love that. And it doesn't have to be huge. You just have to make some effort to save some money and that, that can really help uh, you know, help set the stage. And uh, it also sets a, a, a philosophy and a psychology dealing with the finance group that you're going to be, I'm, that I'm going to be harder on my technical team regarding the cost and financing of things than the finance team is going to be. Right. Right. Because the one benefit I have is that I understand technology and they don't. So they will come to me and say, well, I need you to spend less money. So I need you to take 10% out or whatever. But they don't know how I should do that. They can't tell me what I should do. However, if I go to them and I say, you know, I, I can figure out how to save 15% or 20% of what I've got. And here, here it is. Here's 7.5% for you and 7.5% for me. Yeah. How's that? Right. And then I'm going to keep going then they, there's a trust being built that I'm actually looking out for their interest. Yeah. I don't need, you know, I don't need a babysitter financially. Beautiful. I love that. It's almost like the um, analogy. I, I love this analogy of uh, depositing in other people's uh, emotional banks. And this is kind of obviously quite funny in terms of a financial kind of conversation, but depositing in their trust bank and then their kind of emotional bank making them feel happy it creates that relationship where you know you're looking out for them and then it just kind of creates a reciprocal relationship around that that's that's great uh, hopefully uh, hopefully we're giving uh, some of our budding uh, ctos uh, technology leaders out there some great ideas here there's some i think there's some beautiful gems that uh, deal has shared here um so um bringing our conversation to a close deal what would you like our audience out there, our technology leaders uh, and what have you, uh, take away from this conversation? What would you like to encourage them to do? Um, so I, I think there's, uh, you know, having gone through this for a great number of years, there was later on in my, you know, journey line, there was a great advantage that I had in terms of being able to speak to the business about the fact that I already have a framework for how to go about this. Wow. Okay. I'm not diving into this and now I'm going to fudge around and I don't know what to do and tell me what you'd like me to do. And then I'll figure out how to do that. No, it doesn't matter what, 
what problem it is. We're going to solve a business agility and a financial situation. Those two things. Yes. And I've got a generalized approach, right? Which we could uh, talk about. I usually put it on a Gantt chart and there's seven, five or six, I think, not seven, six different parallel tracks of maturity that I put an assessment through in, in any group. Right. To say what's the maturity of all of these functions, these different types of capabilities. And then I map out a plan to make them more mature and innovate in them. And that way I have a scorecard that I can measure. So whatever business you're in as a CTO or as a VP of IT or as a manager, it doesn't matter. The important thing is to have a plan. And the reason you have a plan is because you have you have an objective. So create an objective about what business, what agility and or business benefit you want to provide and that you intend to save money and then create a framework by which you will go after that. Right. You can make up your own framework for going after it. You can invent it on your own, right? We could have more meetings about it, all of that. I can tell you how I did it, but mm. have a plan about it says a lot to senior management because if you do then they will say oh wow this person has a plan they know they know how they're going to approach that that's good it may change the plan may change may be different than any plan that i would have or tc that you might create mm. that's important yeah I, li I like that uh, having a plan kind of says a lot really you've really sat down and thought about this you know it's not interestingly i didn't actually think about it it's like I went from one job to another job and I wound up reusing what I did at the prior job. And right. I wrote it down. I said, well, what did I do in that last job? And I wrote down these things. Well, I seem, this is what I seem to have done. Yes. It, sort of, it worked itself into a framework. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and obviously, if the audience want to know more about this, we'll provide uh, deals, contact details. Um, I'm obviously uh, curious as to, as to what that process looks like as well. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we can continue our conversation. So thank you for your time, Deal. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's really resonated with me. I really appreciate it. I think it's been great. Thank you for the, the great conversation and the really good questions. Thank you. Have a good day, sir. You too. Bye.